Good morning. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. That was beautiful. I thought many of you would be away this morning, and so while I was preparing, I had this vision that, oh, there'd be like 10 people. It's all good. But that is not true. Um, All right. Well, I wanted to tell you about one of my very first sins. Um, I was probably, obviously I sinned before I was eight or nine or 10, however old I was, but uh, when I was um, around eight, I was in the mid 80s. Anyone here live in the mid 80s? All right, yeah, we got two, three people. Um, and, uh, and so what the rage back then, I was, uh, I guess, Grade three-ish, grade four, was friendship pins. Anyone know what those are, friendship pins? So it's like safety pins, and you put these beads, all these different colorful beads, on the safety pin, and you attach it to your shoelaces. And this was the universal symbol for friendship, and that you were loved uh, by many. And so I, like many of my classmates, we wanted to have these on our shoes because um, it symbolized that we were loved as that makes sense. Um, and so also it became a bit of a fashion statement. So initially it was like you give your, your friends a pin, they put it on their shoe and it's friends forever. And then as, it, as this fad grew, it became just more about what your shoes looked like and how cool that was. And I remember um, I went to a school that was from grade one to grade six. And I remember watching the grade sixes at recess and they would all be in the, in the playground and they would be in a circle and they'd have a ghetto blaster in the circle. Anyone know what that is? Yeah, Mike knows. Um, and they would be breakdancing, and they would all have these friendship pins on their shoes. And so I correlated friendship pins with breakdancing and with just being a really good dancer, being really cool. And so at that point in my life, what I wanted to be was uh, a grade six who could breakdance very well with the circle and people just cheering you on. And so this was very important to me. Um, one day I found myself in our local crafting store called Busy Fingers. Um, and I lived in a place called Porcupine, so the name Busy Fingers is not surprising either. Um, and so we were, we, I was in this store and I was looking, they had this, this whole aisle full of, of, of beads and pins. Yeah, this is an example of what my shoes would look like. These are not my shoes, this is, I found this on, on the internet. So, um, and so I was looking through all these beads and then my eye caught these orange, uh, pom-pom balls. You guys know what I mean? There's neck, the next slide. Okay, so it's like these, but they were orange. And I thought that these were the coolest thing ever. Along with that was um, they had these little dice that you could put the, the pin through and you had these little dice on your shoes as well. So between the dice and the orange pom-pom balls, is that what they're called? I struggled with what to call them. That was the hardest part of this whole sermon was what do I call? Um, that's not true. So, um, so I, was, I was looking at these, I had no money with me, and so I had this moral dilemma. I really want these orange pom-pom balls and dice. It's gonna actually, it's gonna excel my popularity big time if I have these, and I need that. And so I decided in that moment that I would steal them. So I waited until there was no one in the aisle, no one was there, it was the 80s, so they didn't have all these cameras. And I, I looked around, 
And I slipped the pom-pom balls and the dice into my pocket. And I got really, really nervous. I don't know if any of you have ever stolen, stolen every, anything. You don't have to say if you have. Um, but I was like, what have I just done? It's like in my pocket. So I was like, okay, just act cool. So I just, I browsed a bit more, looking at like the paints and whatever, and then thought, okay, that, that's a good time. No one suspects anything. And I made my way calmly, probably put my hands in my pocket, nine years old, out the door. And I walked home. And the whole way home, I'm just like, my heart is beating, my hands are sweaty. I just stole something. And I got home, like, hey, mom, I ran up to my room, closed my door. And I put the orange pom-pom balls and the dice in my bed. And I was, I was like, this next slide. <laughs> I, was, I had my heart's desire. Right, Ben? Yeah, and you're just like, you, I just did something so wrong, but it felt so right. Because this was just about to like, um, make me so popular. So I got my, my pins out, and I put them on the pins, put them on my shoes. And the next day, I went to school. And I rocked those pom-pom balls. And my friends noticed, like, whoa, those are really cool. Or in the 80s, we said radical. Those are really radical. And I was like, yeah, they are radical. Yeah. Um, and so, of course, the fad went away. And eventually, we stopped wearing friendship pins. Um, but this feeling of guilt grew in me as an eight, nine-year-old. This is around the time I actually became a Christian. And so the Holy Spirit was living in me. And I was learning to hear the voice of the Spirit, and I couldn't shake this feeling of guilt. And it went on for two years. I would pray, Jesus, forgive me, I'm sorry, I know I shouldn't have stolen the pom-pom balls, I just wanted them so badly, please forgive me. You know, wash away my sin and my guilt, and then it would come back over and over again. So finally, after about two years, and so I'm like 10, 11, somewhere around there, I, um, I thought, I got I to gotta get rid of this guilt. So I went back to Busy Fingers. It was still open. It's no longer open, which is why I can tell this story freely. Um, <laughs> the police are not on their way. Um, and I went back to Busy Fingers, and I waited again until no one was there. And at this time, loonies had come out. And so I, I slipped a loonie. There was, it was less than a dollar uh, worth of merchandise, by the way. And so a loonie was very generous of me. I slipped a loonie onto the counter, and I ran away. And I was like, my debt is paid. I've paid for those pom-pom balls. And the guilt actually went away, funny enough. And I, I knew that I'd made it right um, with God and with busy fingers. Um, so that is one of my very first sins that I remember, like actively making a decision, I'm going to do this thing. Why do I tell you that story? Because today we're talking about the forgiveness of sins. We're in the Apostles' Creed. And I, I can say that I've never stolen merchandise again. I use the word merchandise because I believe that even at eight, at 10, God was starting to train me in righteousness, right? And so maybe stealing merchandise was not gonna be an issue in my life, but what about stealing, learning to take what isn't mine, right? And so these are the lessons that we learn even as kids of, um, it's about people, it's about creation, it's about money and time. And this is the beginning of the work of, of God teaching me through a lifetime um, of what it means to not take what is not mine. Okay, so, the forgiveness of sins and the Apostles' Creed. Are you guys ready for this? 
It's a, it's a summer day, and we're going to talk about sin. This is your warning. We can, you can leave. No, I, I think it's. I hope. I hope. I pray. It's a message of grace. So let's ask for that grace as we begin this morning. God, we thank you that you are so good and so kind. We thank you that we are wrapped in a story of so much grace and mercy. And we ask for your help this morning. Father, I ask for your help as I attempt to use words to explain um, what is so much greater than words. This experience that we have in life of walking in forgiveness. Um, God, would you meet us this morning and transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are able and would like to, um, please stand. We're going to read the Apostles' Creed together one more time. For those of you the first time here, um, we are going through a series on the Apostles' Creed, and we're almost at the end, but, uh, but we're still in it. So let's read this together. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Yeah, you can be seated. So um, this morning, as we have many times in the last number of months, we've talked about what believing is when we say, I believe. And uh, we understand it to be not just mental assent, but a way of, of believing into, leaning into. And so this morning, we're, we're asking the questions, well, what is forgiveness and what is sin? And how do I believe into the forgiveness of sins? So before we kind of look at some of those definitions, I, I wanted to say briefly um, that the story of um, how this line got into the Apostles' Creed is actually quite interesting and I think quite relevant. So we've referenced, um, uh, Scott and Nelson and Lance and myself, we've referenced this little book for the last number of months. I wanted to show it to you. It's real. Um, ben Myers is the author, and it's been so helpful, I think, for all of us as we've tackled uh, the Apostles' Creed. And I wanted to just read to you this morning from the book. Um, so it's not on the slide, but um, it's just a little bit of how the author, um, Myers, describes what's going on in the early church. What actually occurred was that this line, uh, the forgiveness of sins, was not in the original uh, version of the Apostles' Creed, so it was added later on. So originally, it just went from, uh, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the resurrection of the body. So... Are you wondering why? Good. Okay, here's what Ben Meyer says. But a dramatic debate arose among fourth century believers about the nature of sin and forgiveness. Christians in those days were still subjected to periods of persecution under the Roman emperor. In 303, the emperor ordered that the property of Christians was to be seized, their books burned, and their places of worship destroyed. All Christian leaders were to be imprisoned. Only those who sacrificed to the Roman gods would be released. Some Christians were martyred. 
But martyrdom was always the exception. Countless frightened Christians, including, of course, many clergy, came out to make the sacrifices. The emperor even permitted the Christians to sacrifice en masse, making it as easy as possible for them to renounce their faith. By offering public sacrifice to the Roman gods, such Christians had effectively renounced their baptism. But before long, things returned to normal, and Christianity was again tolerated as part of Rome's pluralistic empire. Predictably, the apostate believers, known as traitors, soon came back to church as if nothing much had happened. This situation created a pastoral crisis for many congregations. What is to be done with believers who have renounced their baptism? Can they be accepted back into the faith? Is there a public way of marking their re-entry into the church? Should they be baptized a second time? Or should they be permanently excluded from participation in the Christian community? These were difficult questions. It was a time of intense soul-searching for many believers. Through this struggle over the traitors, in quotes, the deepest questions of Christian identity came sharply into focus. What is it that makes you a follower of Christ? And what can you do if you have strayed from Christ's path? Is the Christian community a church of the pure, as some called it, or can struggling, weak, uncertain souls also find a place within that community? The fourth century crisis led eventually to clear answers to these questions. Christian teachers argue that the church includes everyone who confesses Jesus and receives baptism. It is not only for the pure and the spiritually successful. Failures in discipleship, even dramatic public failures, do not exclude a person from the grace of God. The forgiveness of sins has taken place once for all in the death and resurrection of Jesus. These conclusions were so important that the ancient church began to include the forgiveness of sins as part of the baptismal confession. In 381, the Nicene Creed was expanded to include the statement, we acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Interesting. Yeah, so the creed um, originally did not have the statement, and yet I love that the early church took many years um, to wrestle with this. Do we, do we include this in, in the creed? And um, I think we're wrestling with it again today. Uh, I hope that we are. So we're asking, what is sin? What is forgiveness? Um, and how do I believe into the forgiveness of sins? Just like the early church, when they wrote this, um, had to learn to believe into what this means. What are the implications? So we're going to start with sin. Oh, we love that word. What is sin? I, I get these hard sermons. I don't really know why. Actually, Nelson always says that too. So you know what? It's all hard. It's theology. It's stuff that it's not, that, that rubs us and, and um, that we have to really wrestle with. So um, what is sin? So uh, both the Greek and the Hebrew, the Old and New Testament talk about sin um, being uh, missing the mark. So um, that's the Greek word there, hamartia, to miss the mark. So it's the idea that you're aiming an arrow at a target and you're missing, and you're missing, and you're missing. So in other words, God's righteousness, God is righteous, and we are, are not. And so when we keep trying to hit the target, we keep not hitting it, and therefore we are unrighteous. God is perfect and holy and righteous. So to understand sin... <clears throat> um, we need to understand, what, what do I mean when I say righteous? That's a 
That's a weird word. We've done, I think, some um, sermons on this before, but it's been a while. So just refresh our, our memories here. So this is borrowed actually from John Stackhouse, who's a, a, a theologian. He does some work on, on righteousness. So is righteousness simply not sinning or, or not being bad, not stealing from busy fingers? Is that, does that make me righteous when I just don't do those things? Here's a quote from John Stackhouse. And, um, and actually, can you go to the next? Oh, okay. I thought I included some of my own words in the quote, but I didn't. That's all him. That's a relief. Okay. Um, Righteousness is God's concern to make things right. It involves both judging, analyzing what's wrong or what's deficient or less than perfect, and then actively making it right. Okay. So this language that we have, this is like um, in in Advent, we talk about um, the crooked paths being made straight or the rough places being made smooth. So it's the idea that it's God filling in um, what isn't there. So it's not just the absence of something, it's the bringing in of something. Um, Another way that we've talked about in the past, righteousness being um, right relatedness. So relationally, things are made right. So it's not just not there, it's made right with God and with each other, with creation. It's really looking at the way things originally were made to be in Genesis 1. So when we talk about unrighteousness or sin, we need to start at the heart and then we need to move out. And that's where we're going to talk about this morning more in depth. Um, But it's moving, it's starting at the heart and it's moving out to our actions, to our words. But it's not that, um, that place of what I'm doing or not doing that actually is the unrighteousness or at least not, that's part of it, but not the full picture. Um, the, the Old and New Testament, they are very similar in how they talk about sin. However, the New Testament brings in Jesus, of course, and now we have a way of understanding um, righteousness against a backdrop of Jesus. He shows us what righteousness actually looks like, uh, whereas in the Old Testament, we don't have that. That's, that's missing. So we're going to talk about Romans chapter 1. If you know Romans chapter 1, you have probably just um, frowned on the inside um, it is a tough chapter, and, uh, and Romans, I'm going to grab some water, Romans um, is a beautiful, beautiful um, book. I hadn't read it in a while, so it's really good to get back into it, but it is, there are some hard things in Romans. We're going to tackle the hardest part of Romans, I think, this morning. Well, one of the hardest, um, but it's so good and it's so rich, and I, I just, I hope and I pray that it um, brings us to a, a, a different or a new understanding of um, of what sin is, and and therefore we can move on from that. So in your pew, not pew, we don't have pews, in your chair Bibles, um, let's turn to Romans chapter 1, 18 to 25. And as you kind of have your hand in there, your thumb in there, um, let's just take a step back before we dive into Romans 1 and remember the bigger story, right? Um, The story doesn't start with sin. The story starts with a loving God who created us and said, it is good, you are good. Um, God was so pleased with his creation. And that is the beginning of the story. Sin is not the beginning of the story. And of course, we know the end of the story already, um, that it is also good and that all things are made whole and right and new. And so in that, we have the fall of humanity, we have sin, um, we have the beautiful story of redemption. And that's what Paul's whole letter or epistle is about. Um, and we're going to look at the beginning, which is um, some words on sin. 
So, Romans 1, 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. The word of the Lord. Okay, so let's summarize um, this section of Romans 1 and see if we can figure out what Paul is saying. Verse 18, the wrath or anger of God is revealed against all godlessness and unrighteousness because people have suppressed the truth. So, anger. God is angry. God is, has a wrath. Ugh, already, this is uncomfortable. Um, we're saying that, Paul is saying that God has anger. What does that mean, that God is angry? Um, it's important to understand that, that anger is, the oppos- is not the opposite of love. That anger actually is a part of love. And I think if we really stop and think about l- the love that we have for another person, we know that anger can very much be a part of that love. And so in the same way, because God loves humanity, um, God is angry at times um, at humanity. Here's, a, I think, a helpful... Um, quote from N.T. Wright, who is doing, um, talking about Romans 1 here. The result is God's anger, or as many translations still have it, wrath. This does not mean that God is malevolent, capricious, liable to lose his temper and lash out wildly. Quite the reverse. As we shall see in chapter 2, God is kind, patient, and forbearing. But he cares passionately about his world and his human creatures. And if there are types of activity which deface, damage, and destroy the world and human beings, God will not, will not let them go on forever. Rape, murder, torture, and economic oppression, the list could go on, and indeed it will go on later in the chapter. God hates them all. He is angry about them all. Let's be quite clear. If he were not, he would not be a good God. So we're going to leave that there. Maybe something that you, you can go home and chew on, or if you want to come chat after. Happy to. Um, so God is angry. Um, the wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness because people have put an end to truth. So what are we talking about here? So the creator revealed himself to humanity um, through what he made, through creation. Humanity can see it. They can understand his power, his divine nature through what he has made. But they have chosen to not glorify him or give him thanks. So, humanity's thinking became nonsense. Their minds were darkened, and they exchanged God's glory for idolatry. In verse 24, 
God let them go. God gave them over. He let them become who they wanted to become. He let them be who they wanted to be. Humanity exchanged truth for a lie and worshiped something they created instead of the creator. So humanity's unrighteousness at this point consists fundamentally in a refusal to honor God and give him thanks. And of course the human race um, has done this on a massive scale um, heading towards idolatry. So note that Paul doesn't give a list here. There's no list of sins. The sin, the the root of the sin, um, is that humanity turned their backs on this creator, that they rebelled against this creator. So Paul delves into the root here. All other depravities that he goes on in this letter and other letters, and and Jesus also would talk about them, um, all other depravities follow from the radical rebellion of the creature against the creator. Here's a quote from Ernst Kassman, which I think is helpful. Paul paradoxically reverses the cause and consequence. Moral perversion is the result of God's wrath, not the reason for it. Moral perversion is the result of God's wrath, not the reason for it. So I don't know about you, but this was a little bit of a new thinking for me in terms of thinking about about sin and even the fall, and, um, and when we say, oh, it's a sin, we have a sin nature, that sort of thing. Um, it's that the sin isn't a list of things that I do bad. It's, it's that comes after because God um, let us go, because we refused to um, worship the creator and give him thanks. So Paul here is talking about um, rebellion rebellion against the creator, and this is where the power of sin comes in. Humanity wanted to be let go and worship idols, and so God let us go. And it just so happens that the course of humanity in letting us go results in mostly in self-destruction, doesn't it? And then the lists of things that destroy us then come after, what we would also refer to as sin. But um, it is in God letting us go that we then, then all of these other things happen. Um, Brian Zahn would say it like this, the deeper truth is that we are more punished by our sins than for our sins. And so this can all sound really theological, um, but if we stopped and thought for a minute of the things that we struggle with, the things that we get tripped up in, that over and over again, I think we can say uh, with certainty that, yeah, that is... That is self-destructive, and not just self-destructive, but other destructive, as our sins impact many times other people. So, what is sin? It is missing the mark of righteousness, yes, but at its root, it's our rebellion toward our Creator and our refusal to worship Him and give Him thanks, instead of worshiping our handcrafted idols. And in Romans, we read about these idols being, you know, animals or reptiles. And we're like, oh, we don't, that's not us. Um, but again, bringing it to our day and age, we certainly could um, list off our idols. We won't this morning. Um, but we make our own idols, and that is what we worship. So at the end of chapter 7 of Romans, Paul keeps going um, for another few chapters, and he starts to get into the good news. And then he just has this chapter of like, oh, 
I know I don't want to do these things, but I keep doing them, and he's wrestling. Paul is wrestling with it as well, which I, I think is so important to know that he's wrestling with this. At the end of chapter seven, Paul cries out, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is where we're going now. So forgiveness. Jesus comes to cut sin down at the root and to set us free. And so again, when we think about that root as being not just that thing I'm doing, not just little eight-year-old stuff stealing, but what's going on in my heart, right? The idols that I'm already at eight years old starting to construct in my life. Jesus comes to cut down at the root our sin. I considered, um, you know, I could give you guys quotes about forgiveness, blah, blah, blah. But then I thought, oh, Paul does a great job of talking about forgiveness and what it means in the rest of Romans. So we can't read the rest of Romans. Don't worry, we're not going to. But I have a little bit of a medley that I made up. Um, just, some, just some verses. It's just a little taste. Maybe it'll want to prompt you to go home and read Romans. Um, but this is a little bit of when we're talking about forgiveness, what forgiveness means um, from the author of who just wrote those other verses that are hard. This is where Paul goes. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For while we were still helpless, at the appointed moment Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proved his own love for us that in, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have now received this reconciliation through him. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us were baptized, who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism, baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to, parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, I urge you, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The word of the Lord. There's a lot in there. I realize that. I was hoping you just hear a little bit and then go away and, and read the rest. Um, and again, that's a medley, so I did skip things. It's not, okay, you guys get it. Um, we are set free. The forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness of when we were enemies of God, rebellious, said, I don't want what you have, God. I want to worship who I, and what I want to worship. That is the moment that God sent his son. That is the moment that God forgave us. Not when we decided to follow him, but when we were still um, worshiping other gods. And so what was dark and dying is replaced, again, not just neutralized, but replaced with light and life. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> um, I, I just, I, Paul talks about this elsewhere. Um, he often talks about when he gives lists of sins, um, he doesn't just leave it as like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. He'll say things like, um, stop lying and instead tell the truth or stop stealing and instead you know, work, work an honest job. Or, I'm paraphrasing. Um, but often it's like, it, it, God doesn't just say, stop doing these things, but he's like, I want to give you this, the power that you need to actually have a full and abundant life doing these things instead. And of course, it comes out of us. It's not just about the root that's of rebellion that's inside of us, but it comes out in these ways. And so over and over again, we see this throughout all of the New Testament, um, whether it's Jesus speaking or Paul or Peter, it's this forgiveness is not just uh, forgive you for doing these things, um, but it's this fullness of life. It's what Paul would call um, sanctification. Um, the life that we live as we learn to become like Jesus. It's, it's, it's a new way of life. So what is forgiveness? The act of pardoning an offender, and in that pardoning, the act of making the rough places smooth and the crooked places straight. That's my own definition, and you can disagree, but um, that's the filling up. That's not just the, okay, it's fine, I pardon you, but it's the next step of God filling us up and teaching, him, teaching us to walk in his ways. So how do we believe into the forgiveness of sins? How do we wrestle with this today? So there are two powers um, in scripture and two powers going on in even this conversation we're having this morning, or monologue as it would be. Um, there are two powers going on here, the power of sin and the power of forgiveness or the Holy Spirit. So if you go to the next slide, so I put some of these up here. Um, whatever power we're connected to, we're plugged into, there's going to be fruit from, from that power. Right? So that source is going to produce fruit in our lives. And so we have the power of sin. We have the power, we're talking about rebellion, that, re that rebellion from the, from the beginning. The power that we um, can plug into when we want to worship our own gods. So Romans 1, where I didn't read it, but he goes on to give um, some of these 
fruits that come from this sin. Sexual impurity, envy, murder, disputes, deceit, malice, gossiping, slandering, arrogance, proud, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, unmerciful. There's actually more. I just ran out of room on this slide, and you guys get the point. Um, So this is the fruit of the power of sin. This is when, G- when God let us go and said, you wanna, you wanna do your thing, human race, you wanna be who you think you wanna be, I will let you do that. And this is some of the result of that. But we also have um, the ability to be plugged into the power of the spirit. I hate using tech, I work for a tech company, so I'm sorry. But you guys get it. Um, where we, our source, that's better. Our source is the, the Holy Spirit. So when we're, when we're um, taking from the source, receiving from the source, um, the fruit of that source of the Holy Spirit is from Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So with these lists up, we can very easily see that one of these um, power sources leads to the destruction of our lives and our relationships, the rotting, right? Even if you can't see it, um, like a tree that's slowly rotting from the inside out, eventually they take down the tree, but they're like, what's wrong with it? It looks fine, and yet it's rotten in the core. Um, I think think we, especially we who um, have been going to church for most of our lives. I think we've, we've gotten pretty good at kind of looking good on the outside, but there's this rotting, rotting stuff on the inside. But eventually, it comes out. So one leads to rotting, and, oh, can you go back? That's, that's, the, that's the really special slide, because we don't want to see that yet. Um, so one leads to, thank you, one leads to rotting and one leads to life. And not just life, but abundant life. Abundant life. One is the destruction of our souls and the other is the salvation of our souls. And so much, you might notice, is so much of this fruit that we see up here on either side, it affects other people. So not all sin affects other people. You can, it can still be sin and not actually affect anyone else. But often... Um, our sin affects other people. Also, our fruit of the Spirit affects other people. I mean, this is all about how we interact with other people. Um, And so, the fruit that comes out of our lives is about other people, as well as ourselves. So we bear the fruit of the power that we're under. And it all starts with going back to who and to what we're worshiping. And so, yeah, thank you. We ask um, this morning, what power source are you plugged into? And, and I think probably many of, many of us would say that we are followers of Jesus this morning, um, and so we are plugged into the Holy Spirit. Um, but as I look at my own life, especially as I've been pre- preparing for this sermon, um, there's definitely parts of my life that are not plugged into the Spirit, that I've, I've put something above um, worshiping God. And so it may be for you who've never been plugged into the Holy Spirit, never experienced the forgiveness of God, um, 
today is the day for salvation, right? Today is the day for salvation. You are um, able to choose um, to repent and to come to Jesus and be plugged into the life, the abundant life that God has for us. I think a helpful question that um, I've started asking myself is um, not should I do that or should I not do that, you know, kind of how like this idea of, of black and white or right and wrong, but in doing this thing or not doing this thing, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Because we all know that um, the thing leads to the next thing leads to the next thing. Who am I becoming? So why did the early church, this is a question I had, um, they put in to describe the life of the Christian, there's one line in the whole creed, it's about God the Father, it's about God the Son, it's about the Holy Spirit, and then in that there's one line for us, it's all for us, but um, that describes our actual life, how we live life, and it's this, the forgiveness of sins. Before this is the confession, um, the confession of the saints, anyway. That line. Communion, thank you. Um, the communion of saints, and the next one is the resurrection of our bodies. So this is our life. This is our life, the forgiveness of sins. So can you imagine if that was our life? If that in the morning we get up and we'd be like, okay, Lord, we would worship the creator, and in doing so we would lay down our idols, we, we all know what they are in our lives, the things that we're wrestling with. Um, yeah, and we, would, and we would lay that down, and then we would go out the door, and then we would extend that kind of forgiveness um, to the people around us. And we do that day after day after day after day. Can you imagine what the world would look like if we, the church, just lived out the forgiveness of sins, just believed into the forgiveness of sins, it would change the world. Because we all know that when we see a powerful act of forgiveness, it changes us. But imagine us knowing our identity in Christ every morning. I am your, I am your creature. I was created by you, God. I worship you. And I lay down my idols. And then we go out and we walk in that same forgiveness and we give it to other people. It would change the world. So this is an invitation for us this morning as we're asking, how do I believe into the freedoms of sins? Lots of ways to do it. We're together this morning. Um, we want to encounter the living Christ. This isn't um, rocket science. It's not magic. Um, but, but that thing that you may have come here this morning that you're struggling with, sometimes on my drive to church in the morning, uh, I woke up miserable and I've got that thing that I'm just ticked off about, and I'm wrestling, and I'm, oh, God, again? Why am I wrestling with this again? Right? And then we get to church, and we're like, hey, how's it going? Um, we know. We know the drill. And that's not always what, like, I actually believe when you say you're well, that you're also well. But you know what I'm saying? We have all this stuff that we have inside of us sometimes, and these patterns and these thoughts, these addictions that we have that are harming us, that are harming others, but we just can't live without it. At least that's what we believe. Or that, that person that we're jealous of or the way that we harm ourselves. And I just want to say that if this is not a place of healing, then what is it? If this is not a place where we can encounter the living God again, 
then what in the world are we doing in our worship, in our, in our singing, in our praying, and in, in encountering the scripture and, and wrestling with the scripture? As we encounter the living Christ, we can expect to be healed. And we can know that we are forgiven. And this isn't just about, this is not at all about shame. We are not our sin. We are not our sin. But this is about asking the Holy Spirit to to convict me, to show me. Show me not just the thing on the outside, but the thing on the inside. Like, Jesus, get to my root and set me free at the root. And that is where abundant life just starts to pour out of us. And that is where that list of the fruit of the Spirit starts to activate. Is when we let Jesus in to the root, into our idols. Remember, he knows that they're there. Um, and so we invite Jesus into those places that maybe we invite no one else. Um, but that's where Jesus wants to encounter us, even this morning. Who are you becoming? Not what do I need to stop or start doing, but who am I becoming? And in that, Jesus, I want to become someone different in that area of my life. So we're going to take a few minutes this morning um, as we have our application time um, to apply this, to just spend some time in prayer. We're talking about the forgiveness of sins. Why not um, take some time in our busy lives to bring our hearts toward God? You can do that alone. If you want to grab a buddy and actually, you know, have a confession time, that's wonderful. That's scripture says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us um, as we pray with each other and for each other. If you have a word that you want to share with us this morning, God's put something on your heart, um, please come up and do that. Um, if you want to just pray out loud, that's cool. Um, let's respond to um, how God is calling us this morning into believing into the forgiveness of sins. He is here to set us free and to give us abundant life. So let's do that now.